and turn to Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that, when I lose my job here, people, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of, of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of the, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. Well, we're getting to the end of the weekend and people are tired, so I thought we would look at the most bizarre parable that Jesus ever told. It's different from the outline you've got in the books, uh, but the outline on the screen tells you. Now, we live as if eternity, I think most of us, if we're honest, we live as if eternity, eternity is the epilogue, a brief afterthought after the real action, which is life in this world. It's not. Now, if this rope here... Uh, represents, let's just say eternal life isn't eternal. It only goes on for 100,000 years. Sorry, 10,000 years. Let's make it not even that long. 10,000 years. If this rope is 10,000 years, stretching basically the, the length of this room, that is your eternal life. Your earthly life, if you manage to live to 100, is that tiny little yellow bit at the end. If you live to a hundred and eternity is only 10,000 years, then that is what you spend all your time, your money, your attention, your worries on. And that is what we ignore. The great Puritan minister, Richard Baxter, asked a question of the Christians in his day that is as relevant to us too. He wants us to think about whether we are so focused on that ephemeral sliver that we have ignored the great reality. Uh, He says this, If there be so certain and glorious a rest for the saints, 
Why is there not more industrious seeking after it? One would think that if a man did once hear of such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believed what he heard to be true, he should be transported with the the vehemency of his desire after it and should almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else and speak and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet people who hear of it daily and profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith do as little mind it or labour after it as if they'd never heard of any such thing or did not believe one word they hear. Very convicting words. There is a reality gap between what I say I believe about eternity with my mouth, what I claim to believe in my mind, and how I live, how I spend, how I worry. And Jesus told us a parable to help us get a right perspective on life now and the life to come. Uh, It starts with a bad man and a cunning plan in verses uh, one to two, a bad man and a cunning plan. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So you've got a wealthy guy, uh, he's worked hard, built up a successful business, and eventually he's able to hand over the management of it to somebody else so he can get on with golf and foreign travel and all the things that he's foregone while he's built up his business. And all seems to go well for a while. But then he starts to hear troubling rumours from other employees that maybe his manager is not being quite as diligent as he should be in looking after and stewarding his assets. His money is being wasted. He hopes it's not true, but he uh, he appoints some forensic accountants to go through the books and finds out that the rumours are bang on. Is the manager incompetent or is he dishonest? I think from what we see later, he's probably dishonest because he doesn't seem incompetent. What is clear is he's got to go. So what's he going to do? He trudges home after this meeting where he's been fired, stares in the mirror and looking back at him as a portly middle-aged man, he thinks there is no way... I'm going to be able to pay for my food with manual labour. And he's too proud to sit at the street gates with a begging bowl. So what will he do? Well, he might be a terrible manager, but he's not a fool. And he comes up with a shrewd scheme, a rather cunning plan. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 24. This is enormous amounts of money as he uh, restructures debt for his manager, for his uh, owner. Uh, the debt of olive oil is about three years' wages. The the wheat is more like eight to ten years' wages, hundreds of thousands of pounds, and he just cuts a third off it. You can imagine the line of debtors outside the office, sort of furrowed brows, and he says, oh, oh, hang on, all the other debtors are here. What's happening? Are, are the debts being called in? I'm in real trouble. Am I going to have to sell the house, the children? You know, what am I going to do? And then they notice that the people coming out of the office have got big grins on their face, and I, hey, and looking forward to spending the windfall. Because the dishonest steward knows full well, verse 4, that come next week, he will be in need of a job, 
and he'll be in need of somewhere to live. And now there will be plenty of people in the town who are very happy to welcome him in, very happy to help him out. What happens next when the owner finds out? It's not like he can sack him. He's already done that. But he's going to blow his top, right? Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. It is rather surprising to hear that the master (laughs) grudgingly says, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, technically you had the right to do that. And I've got to say, that's a pretty cunning play. Well done. But what is utterly bewildering is that when Jesus steps back to teach this parable, and in every parable you basically have a God figure, an example to follow and an example to not follow, what's the example that he commends? Surely it can't be. Jesus is holding up this dishonest manager and saying, yeah, yeah, in some ways you want to behave like him. Second half of verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. So when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. (laughs) Now, remember, you're not meant to press all the details of a parable. They just teach those big points. Here's a, a big one big idea that you're to get hold of. So it's not saying be dishonest, people. That's the take home. That's not the point at all. Jesus is telling a deliberately shocking story to make a very serious point. And the big life lesson comes in verses 9 to 13, where he basically says, uh, live now, invest now in the light of eternity. Invest now in the light of eternity. It's a very interesting comment that Jesus makes in the second half of verse 8. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, on the surface, he's pointing out something I guess lots of us will have seen, which is Christians can be a little bit naive when it comes to the realities of this world. And so they often get taken advantage of. When I was working for a church that had um, its office in the same building that we met in on a Sunday, and it was quite visible, uh, you'd get this steady stream of petty con artists would come in because churches are seen as a soft touch for con artists to get a little bit of money out of. But actually... Jesus is making the opposite point from the one we think. You see, it's not Christians like that, those kind of heavenly-minded ones that Jesus is saying are a bit soft in the head and liable to be taken advantage of. His target are the savvy, the worldly wise Christians. His point is that the Christians who, who, you know how the game is played down here, who are good at fitting in in this world, at investing, at getting ahead, the ones who get this world and how it works, so often he says, well, They're feeble-minded and naive when it comes to eternal realities because in all their calculations, they completely fail to invest for eternity. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, he's saying, look, the student in this story, he can see the day of reckoning is now here and he just has a couple of days to get ready for the rest of his life. And if he doesn't use those days in a cunning, wise way, he's in trouble for the rest of his life. He'll be destitute in rags. Or, if he uses them well, he'll be surrounded by friends and never short of a meal, a bed, and a job. So he does whatever it takes to ensure that the remainder of his earthly life runs well. 
He doesn't care if the owner blows his lid or beats him. I mean, who cares? A little bit of an awkward meeting or a, or a short beating. Who cares? If he gets this right, the rest of his life will go well. And Jesus' words turn a spotlight onto us. We've got most of us, I don't know, 40, 50 years, maybe 60 years left in which to prepare for eternity, 10 million years. And how we use those years, well, that shows whether we will spend our eternity in the bitter regret and the anguish of hell or in the joy of eternity with God in the new earth. And if we're wise, if we're rational, if we're street smart, we'll do whatever it takes with what we have down here to ensure it goes well up there. That's his point. This life is but a blink of an eye compared to what is to come. And yet, and yet most of us are obsessed with working out what's happening in this little bit and are so unprepared for what is to come. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying here in this parable something that contradicts everything else the Bible teaches. He's not saying you can buy your way into heaven, spend now, and you earn eternal life. He's not saying that. Jesus came to die on a cross because you can't earn your way into heaven. You receive forgiveness and spiritual life as a free gift. So the poorest person who ever lived can have eternal life, and the richest person who ever lived cannot buy it. It's a free gift of God. But real faith, real trust in Jesus that obtains eternal life makes a real difference to how we live now, our relationships, our choices, how we spend our time and our money. It's no good saying, I live for the Lord Jesus, if actually every decision I make, every resource I use is applied to this life. Shows that actually the reality is, while I talk a trust in Jesus and I talk a hope of heaven, I live obsessed with this world. Only God and people last forever. And if all my money and time goes on house, holidays, cars, gadgets, and the things of this world, it's very hard for me to say I genuinely trust in heaven. And so he applies it, be faithful now and you will be rewarded in eternity. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, from what verse 11 says, the little that he's talking about here is clearly cash and possessions. He says, you know, that stuff, the stuff that God gives us on earth is really not very valuable. But most of us spend all our time obsessing about getting more of it rather than using it well. And Jesus' question is, look, stop worrying about what you don't have. How are you doing as a steward of what you do have? And amazingly, uh, these verses tell us that the money, the possessions, the opportunities and abilities we have in this life, they're loaned to us by God. And if we prove faithful with these few meager things, God will give us greater riches for ourselves in eternity. Imagine a parent with a, gives a 20 quid pocket money. That's inflation. It used to be a quid back in my day, but 20 quid pocket money to their teenager. And every week, the same thing happens. They blow it on sweets and video games. Every week, sweets and video games. They never save any. They never spend any on anybody else. They never give any away. They just spend it on sweets and video games. Now, 
if the parent sees that, they'd be an absolute fool if on the 18th birthday they give a million pounds to that child. God is not a fool. It's not the only reason for it, but it is worth being generous and using the resources we have now in a way which is eternally significant. Because if we do, if we give and spend and use what we have now to serve God's causes, then in the new creation, God will entrust us with fabulous wealth. One day, God will call us to his throne on Judgment Day, and he will entrust the whole new creation to us to look after, animals to care for, cities to build, resources to make the most of, technology to invent, people to lead and organize, the wealth of the cosmos to use for good. And we'll ask, how on earth, God, can you entrust this responsibility to, to people like us? And he'll say, oh, look, I gave you something almost worthless. Uh, it was like money. I now use it foundation rubble for, for the new city. I gave you some of that stuff. Not a lot, but some. And while you blew an awful lot of it, accumulating stuff that you didn't even have room for and had to pay to store elsewhere, you were generous with some of it. You were generous with some of it. And even though it hurt, you gave money to see the gospel spread. And you gave money to see uh, poor people fed and housed and homed. And you were trustworthy with a little. And because you were trustworthy with a little, I'm now going to give you a whole lot more. Be encouraged. God has genuinely valuable stuff that he is looking forward to handing over to you. I know many here are serving faithfully and investing heavily for eternity, and it is costing you. All that we heard about in Talks 1 and 3 is coming to you, to us. The hours you spent praying for others, the emotional energy you invested in taking on the burdens of others, the tears you shed over those wandering from God, the reputation you risked to be known as a Christian, to tell others about Jesus Christ the money you spent on gospel causes and the poor rather than on comforts and holidays, the time you invested in serving others, the fun things that you said no to so that you could commit to being at church every week, the late nights you spent preparing Bible studies, the rubbish Christians you forgave, even though they'd hurt and failed you. Jesus sees it all. Jesus records it all, and one day Jesus will reward you for it. One day he'll look you in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And one day he will then embarrass you with the generosity of what he gives you in the light of what you've done on earth. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters either. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the word for money is actually a much more general term. It's mammon. It's a word I, I guess we've heard before. And it means more than money. It means really this world and all its stuff, uh, worldly possessions, power, popularity. It's the stuff we crave if this life is everything. That's what it is. The stuff we crave if this life is everything. And Jesus is pointing out that how we use our money, our time, our resources, reveals what's going on in our hearts. How we use our gifts, our abilities, and our influences it displays what's going on deep in our hearts. It shows whether truly I live for God and eternal life or truly I live for this world and what I can get out of it. And so Jesus told this rather troubling, 
odd little parable to encourage us to examine ourselves, to urge us to be rational, shrewd, sharp-minded investors when it comes to eternal life, to be every bit as hard-nosed in using earthly resources for eternal life as we are in building our careers, live for eternity and the pleasures that will truly satisfy rather than obsessed with this world and the fleeting things that will not last. We're going to spend some time in groups in a minute, uh, and it's a chance just to chat through uh, some of what we've been hearing and also to think through in particular, what would it mean for you? How would your life look different if eternity was everything? What would it look like for you if eternity was everything? Now, I think the danger with a question like that is that we think I'm here now and I ought to be over here. And gosh, you know, I ought to be a missionary with an unreached people group and just living a completely radically different life. And I can't imagine how I go from here to there. So I just think, oh, I'm rubbish. Uh, In some ways, those questions uh, can be unhelpful. So rather than think, uh, what would it mean for you to if to live as if eternity was everything? Think. What one thing will I do (coughs) differently if I really got what we've been talking about this weekend, the reality of the glories of the new creation and the horrors of hell for those who do not trust in Christ? What difference will it make? What measurable thing will I do to move one step towards a life which looks like eternity matters more to me than this world? What one thing will I do? You might want to think it through for different areas, in the way I use my money, in the way I use my time, in how open I am with the gospel at work, all sorts of ways. It may be that the the biggest thing for you is is not uh, stuff I'll do that I feel guilty about not doing. It's actually, I know that what I really need to do is fill my heart more and more with how glorious heaven is. So I'm actually going to, the one thing for me is to spend much more time digging into what the Bible teaches about the new creation so that my heart is full of a desire to do these things, not just a guilt motivation. It'll be different for all sorts of us, but there'll be time in a minute to, as groups, spend some time chatting and then pray. But what will it mean for you? If you're at the prayer meeting on Wednesday, we heard a really, I thought, quite extraordinary example of it. Um, So it was lovely to have the Griffiths over from their, their work in for OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship in uh, in East Asia. But they're based in Brazil, raising up missionaries from Brazil to, to send over to the mission field there. And they met one particular girl this last year in the first 12 months they've been who is really excited by their vision. And she's applied to join the Brazilian Diplomatic Service. And there are lots of, you know, postings that people want. If you can get a posting in the American embassy, you know, that's good for your career. That's a very important one. Um, Posting to Brussels with the EU, again, that's, you know, an important, significant posting. She's applying for Pyongyang, North Korea, where bizarrely Brazil actually has an embassy. That is not a great career move. She doesn't care. Nobody wants to work there. And so she's been told, look, if you pass the exams to get in, you can have that posting for as long as you like it. But she's not thinking about her earthly career. She's thinking that she can be of eternal significance in North Korea, helping the OMF work in that country. She's happy to sacrifice career progression. Big deal. Her career might not go quite as well for the 40 years that she works on earth. 
She might not end up with quite so big a pension pot. She might not end up with quite so many letters after her name. She might not have so many people at her leaving do saying what a magnificent diplomat she was. But for 10 billion years, she will know the commendation of Almighty God. And there may well be North Koreans in the new creation rather than in hell because she was willing to sacrifice. I guess that's a shrewd manager. That's someone living a life shaped by eternity. Now, there are, well, there are three Brazilians in the room. I was going to say, none of you can do that, but there's three of you can. <laughs> uh, it'll look different for all of us. <laughs> Don't you feel the pressure now? <laughs> it'll look different for all of us. The question is, how will you live a life more shaped by eternity? What will you do? I'm going to pray, and then I'll hand over to Dave, who will uh, tell us how to divvy up into the groups. Our Father God, we thank you that you have unimaginable pleasures for us. You have glorious responsibilities to entrust to us. And Father, we pray that we would live now in a way which shows that we are trustworthy stewards of what we, you've given us so that we might enjoy some of the rich blessings that you have lined up for your people in the new creation. Help us to live now in a way which is shaped by the glorious eternity to come. Amen.